This is colorectal surgery, a companion to specialist surgical practice, edited by Robin K.S. Phillips and Sue Clark, Chapter 4, Colonic Cancer. Uh, I think this is Part 3, Operative Technique. Um, the descri- descriptions of operative technique given here refer to open surgery only as the laparoscopic approach is dealt with elsewhere. For all colonic resections, it's my preference to have the patient in the legs apart position using a split leg table, even if access to the anus or pelvis is not required, as this facilitates distribution of surgeons, scrub nurse and assistants around the table. The use of a multi-component self-retaining, self-retaining retractor such as the Omnitract is also advised. Right hemicolectomy. I prefer midline incisions for all colonic resections as there is no muscle damage and access is gained to all parts of the abdomen and pelvis. For a right hemicolectomy it's useful to have two thirds of the incision above the umbilicus to facilitate mobilisation of the hepatic flexure. With the surgeon standing on the patient's right, the right colon is retracted towards the midline by the assistant in the peritoneum and the right paracolic gutter is divided. This extends from the sequel pole to the hepatic flexure and carefully to this point to Point, the lesser sac is entered and the greater omentum divided bet- below the gastroepiploic arcade up to the point of intended division of the transverse colon. The right colon is then retracted firmly towards the midline and the plane between the colonic mesentery and the posterior abdominal wall is carefully developed with diathermy, taking care not to damage the duodenum. As this is done, the ureter and gonadal vessels will fall away safely. This is done until the superior mesenteric vessels are clearly identified so that the right colic and ileocolic vessels can be ligated and divided very close to their origins. The bowel wall is then cleared at the sites of transaction and single crushing clamps are applied. Soft clamps may be applied on proximal small bowel and distal large bowel and the bowel is divided on the crushing clamps leaving them on the specimen. Left hemicolectomy. A long midline incision is employed, extending from above the umbilicus to the pubis, symphysis pubis. The operator stands on the patient's left side and the assistant retracts the sigmoid colon medially. The peritoneum lateral to the sigmoid and descending colon is divided close to the white line of fusion using diathermy. It should then be possible to see the plane between the mesentery and the retroperitoneal structures, which can then be further developed using a combination of firm medial traction of the bowel by the assistant and counter traction applied by the operator on the retroperitoneum using a swab of forceps. This manoeuvre will ensure that the ureter and gonadal vessels are swept away. Care must be taken to identify the hypogastric nerves and these should be separated from the mesentery or they may be damaged as the upper rectum is prepared for anastomosis. The splenic flexure should then be mobilised and this is best done by dissecting the greater momentum off the transverse colon and continuing laterally towards the flexure. If the tumour is in the region of the splenic flexure, however, it is advisable to divide the gastrocolic ligament and take the momentum with the specimen. In either event, the splen is at risk from tears caused by traction on its peritoneal attachments and, despite extreme care, splenectomy is sometimes necessary. For minor tears, however, application of a hemostatic agent such as oxycellulose is sufficient. Once the left colon has been mobilised, the origin of the inferior mesenteric artery is identified by dividing the peritoneum over the aorta close to the fourth part of the duodenum, ligated and divided. To obtain full mobility, it's then necessary to divide the inferior mesenteric vein just below the inferior border of the pancreas. The colon's then divided, as described for right hemicolectomy, at a convenient point in the transverse colon and at the rectosigmoid junction. Anastomosis. For anastomosis, after a section of a colonic cancer, I prefer to use hand suturing, although it's appreciated that stapling may produce excellent results. Appositional serosubmucosal anastomosis. This method, initially described by Matheson et al., 
uses a single layer of interrupted 3O braided polyamide. For mobile anastomoses, usually ileocolic, the first step is to ensure that the ends to be anastomosed are roughly equal in circumference. This is usually achieved by making an incision on the anti-mesenteric aspect of the small bowel, although some surgeons prefer to use an end-to-side technique. One side of the anastomosis is, pref- is performed on the serosal as- aspect of the bowel between the mesenteric and anti-mesenteric borders, placing the sutures 4mm apart and 4mm deep, ensuring that the muscle layer and the submucosa, but not the mucosa, have been included. The sutures are left untied until they have all been inserted, see figure 4.5 and figure 4.6, and each knot is then tied by hand to ensure a snug but non-constrictive result. The half-completed anastomosis is then turned over and the process repeated. Mesenteric defects are not closed. For colorectal or ileorectal anastomoses, the posterior row of sutures is inserted first, holding each suture with a specially designed suture clamp or individual artery forceps. If artery forceps are used, they should be threaded onto a forceps holder to avoid tangling. Again, the sutures are tied by hand and after, after insertion of the whole row, the knots being tied on the luminal side of the anastomosis after the proximal bowel has been parachuted down the sutures to the upper rectum. The knot tails are then cut so that they are covered by the cut in edges of the undisturbed mucosal layers. On completion of the posterior aspect of the anastomosis, the anterior part is performed in a similar fashion, but with the knots tied on the extraluminal side. This type of anastomosis is greatly facilitated by the use of curved Heaney needle holders with the needle mounted facing out from the convex side of the tip. Stapled anastomoses. After right hemicolectomy, the most widely employed stapled anastomosis is the functional end-to-end. Here, the ends of the colon and ileum are stapled close at the time of specimen excision, and two small enterotomies are made to permit insertion of the limbs of a lineal cutting stapler. The anastomosis is then performed by firing the stapler, taking care not to include mesentery, see figure 4.8, and after checking the staple line for bleeding, the remaining defect is closed with a linear stapler. After left hemicolectomy, a true end-to-end anastomosis can be performed using a circular anastomosing stapler introduced per anum, figure 4.9, but in some male patients, the intact rectum can be difficult to negotiate. Results of anastomotic techniques. The interrupted sero-submucosal technique is recommended for its adaptability to any anastomosis involving the colon, but it's also associated with the best results in the literature, with leak rates of 0.5 to 3% in sizeable series. Stapling has been compared with hand suturing in several randomised control trial, randomised trials, and although the results vary, there seems to be no consistent difference between in colonic anastomotic dehiscence between the two approaches. One trial, in one trial, there was evidence that the tumour occurrence was less than the sta- in the stapled group, but no distinction between rectal and colonic resections was made. Drains. After the anastomosis is complete, many surgeons will leave a drain in the peritoneal cavity, either to minimise the consequence of an anastomotic leak or to prevent the accumulation of fluid that may be infected. There's no evidence to support this practice, and three randomised trials have shown there to be no advantage associated with the drainage of colonic or colorectal anastomoses. Postoperative care and complications.
After colectomy, post-operative care is similar to that of any patient undergoing major abdominal surgery and there's now increasing interest in fast-track or enhanced recovery. This involves a multimodal approach to post-operative recovery that's based on early feeding, early mobilisation, IV fluid and sodium restriction and avoidance of both drains and nasogastric intubation, initial epidural analgesia with avoidance of parenteral opiates may also be employed. A median hospital stay, including readmissions after open colonic surgery, of three days can be achieved if this policy is pursued, but involves considerable commitment, not only from the patient, but also from the anaesthetic staff, nursing staff and the community healthcare. Anastomotic dehiscence. Although patients undergoing colectomy may suffer any other complications associated with major abdominal surgery, nastomotic breakdown is the major source of morbidity specific to this type of operation. Subclinical leaks occur more frequently than clinically obvious leaks, but after resection of a colonic tumour, the overall significant leak rate should be no more than 4%. A leak may present in a variety of ways, and the onset of symptoms may be quite insidious. Warning signs are pyrexia, increasing pulse rate and abdominal distension due to paralytic ileus, as well as unexplained cardiorespiratory disturbance. The patient may then go on to develop localised or generalised peritonitis or a faecal fistula, usually through the wound. Occasionally, the patient will develop sudden generalised peritonitis and septicemic shock as a result of rapid faecal contamination of the peritoneal cavity. Because of the heterogeneous nature of symptoms, a leak should be suspected in any patient with an anastomosis who is not progressing as well as expected. Investigations that may prove useful in a doubtful case include full blood count, abdominal and chest radiographs and a water-soluble contrast enema. Increasingly, CT is employed. The white cell count is usually raised, although not inevitably. Plain radiographs will frequently dis- demonstrate distended loops of bowel and gas, and distended loops of bowel and gas may be seen under the diaphragm, although both of these may be seen after any laparotomy in the absence of a leak. The most useful investigation is a water-soluble contrast enema, often now CT, and in the patient with clinical signs consistent with a leak, extravasation of contrast in the anastomosis at the anastomosis secures the diagnosis. The treatment of an anastomotic dehiscence depends on the specific mode of presentation. The patient with general peritonitis requires a laparotomy after appropriate resuscitation. With major disruption, the anastomosis should be taken down and the two ends exteriorised if possible. Primary repair of the anastomotic dehiscence should not be attempted. After dealing with the anastomosis, careful peritoneal toilet must be performed using copious quantities of warm saline with or without antibiotic and the patient will require at least five days of intravenous intravenous antibiotic therapy. In the patient with localised peritonitis who remains otherwise well, a conservative approach with systemic antibiotics may be appropriate, but laparotomy should not be delayed if there is any deterioration. A faecal fistula can also be treated in this way, but care must be taken with the surrounding skin and nutritional support may be required if drainage is prolonged.